Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbbVie company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. I want to welcome everybody to Back to Practice. Thanks for joining our webinar series, and thanks to BMC and iTube and our other sponsors. I'm very happy and excited tonight to be here hosting the podcast uh, webinar with my good friends and colleagues from around the country and three of the most excellent refractive cataract surgeons in the country. Uh, Dee Stevenson, who is on the west coast of Florida in Venice, Florida, just across the uh, state from me, and Tao Raviv, who is up in Manhattan in New York City, and then Keith Walter, who is in Winston-Salem at Wake Forest University. And I'm Quentin Allen. I'm from Florida Vision Institute here in Stewart, Florida. And I'm really excited to have my colleagues here we're going to talk a little bit about how things have changed in the premium channel and premium technology, especially going through the pandemic. Okay, I think we all can agree that we were sort of in the, the new heyday for premium technology prior to the pandemic. You know, I, I can't believe that I've been in practice for 20 years now, but I remember, you know, how excited we were to have all of the offerings you know, right before the pandemic hit. We had new lenses that were developing. We've been using femtosecond laser. Uh, we had new lenses on the horizon. We've got EDOF, multifocal, uh, you know, new developments in almost every segment of IOL technology. And then we have to stop operating for a few months. So I think it hit all of us very hard. And I think we're all seeing the, the new uptick. We've seen some articles and uh, there was a recent published paper that talked about how there's been an increase in refractive surgery, uh, especially with LASIK. But I think anecdotally, what I've heard from other surgeons around the country, and we want to find out, are, are you all hearing the same thing? Are, are premium conversions increasing? What has happened to that segment in your practice? How are your patients feeling about premium technology now? And what do you think about not, not where we've been, but now where we're headed, you know, hopefully over the next a few months to the, the rest of the year. You know, what do you, what do you anticipate and what are you seeing in your own practices? Dee, why don't we start with you? You're on the, the west coast of Florida and you and I both practice in sort of retirement type communities. Are you seeing the same thing that I have with, with increasing premium conversions more recently? Well, you know, it's funny, you, you know, I, I'm laughing because, um, you know, this has been a conversation that I've had with lots of my, all, all of our colleagues. Uh, you know, our Cedars Aspen group as well. But I tell you, I, I do about 88% of my cases are premium, uh, upgraded to premium lenses with, with Femto, of course. And um, I have had three months of 100% uh, conversion. So, my, and I have an incredibly talented uh, surgical counselor who was my, who's worked with me for 31 years and was an optician, still an optician, but She's been my administrator and then been, been my surgical counselor since I got in, put Femto into my uh, space. And I don't know what she's doing, but people are wanting to spend money. You know, they're, they're, they, they've been home, they're bored out of their mind. They wanted, you know, they're reading um, stuff online. They're reading my web pages. You know, they're looking, they're talking to their friends and people want to spend the money on themselves. And, you know, my population is not LASIK. Um, age. My patient population is cataract age or dysfunctional lens age. So I have seen a big increase, uh, you know, when I'm reaching 100% in, in, for a couple of months. So 
I'm excited. I'm excited. I, you know, I was worried there for a while, but I'm real excited how things have been. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of where my practice is. So let's, let's move a little up the East Coast. Let's start with you, Keith. You're in North Carolina and you're also in a, not a huge city, but what's, what's going on in Winston-Salem and how does the academic center play into this for you, you think, and what you've seen? And so we were, we were totally shut down for about seven weeks. I think I did one emergency case with a residence uh, during that time. We didn't do any other surgery. LASIK was shut down. So yeah, I was a little bit worried when we started coming back that, you know, we're just going to see a bunch of, you know, four plus NS cataracts and people don't have any money. And we saw some of that. We saw some people that were delayed maybe by that two month period and needed surgery. But, um, but definitely it's picked up in the refractive world, both with LASIK. I do see a lot of LASIK patients and, and, and I've been here like over 20 years. And so I've been known uh, for, the, for a while that I do LASIK. And you know, it's worse than uh, glasses, glasses that fog up. I mean, we're seeing so many people, especially nurses. It's so funny, so many healthcare workers who are coming in and you know, we're the number one employer of the area. So a lot of healthcare workers are coming in and saying, you know, I can't, I can't do my shift like this. You know, these glasses are fogging up all the time. It's really hard to see. And so I, I've been amazed and I'm sure you guys experienced the same thing. How many people are coming in wanting to get rid of their glasses, both young and old. Uh, they, they don't like the mask to begin with. And when they have to wear a mask, you know, it fogs, fogs up their glasses is even worse. So we're definitely seeing an increase. I think my LASIK conversion rate or my LASIK, uh, numbers have doubled or almost tripled. Uh, it's really amazing that we're seeing this huge increase in LASIK consults, requests, and then conversions to surgery as well. We're seeing that as well. And even the RLE consults, refractive lens exchange, I've seen an increase in those. Tal, now you were hit pretty hard in, in Manhattan, obviously. New York Center was, to some extent, the, the center of the pandemic here in the U.S. for a while. So how has that impacted things? Is, is social distancing more of an issue there? Are people still able to get out and come see you? What's going on in New York City? Uh, yeah, New York was really hard hit. We were shut down for three months, no elective surgery. I think that one of the longest periods. And when it came back, it came back trickling slow for someone like me who was in Manhattan primarily. Uh, the other boroughs of Manhattan, you know, Brooklyn, Bronx, it came back more quickly, but many people in Manhattan fled to second homes and left because Manhattan became, uh, you know, the few parks we had were padlocked playgrounds and there's really nothing to do. Uh, and slowly it's been coming back and thankfully we're back up to almost, almost 100%. Uh, but it took a few months to get there as far as uh, uh, cataract surgery volume and things like that and LASIK. Uh, and I've noticed what you guys have all noticed. Uh, there's no question that people are interested in, everyone has got extra, uh, used to be called disposable income. They haven't gone on any trips and they're, they're all doing home improvement face improvement, eye improvement. Uh, you know, we weren't sure about that, but it is, it is here, it's a trend. I know some plastic surgeons are really busy here. I know that you know, companies that sell furniture online are completely sold out and everything, and people are just using that opportunity to improve things uh, because we can't really be with each other. We can't, we can't travel, we can't do a lot of things. And so uh, it actually fits what we do. And I, I think, you know, adoption in my practice is also like D's. It's, it's north of 90%. I like to use the word adoption because now in the old days, you know, conversion, this, that. Now it's really, this is the best technology we have. When our colleagues that we know, some colleagues that have had cataract surgery at, you know, 50 year old, they all adopted the premium lens technology. This is the best there is. I think uh, the way I view it is this is what we should have a full focus lens. This, this is what you should do. And you know, we can work down from that if there are issues and 
you know, financial, of course, is one, and others. Your eye is not a good candidate. Uh, but certainly, I think all of us here uh, really uh, have adopted this in our technology and in our practices, and our patients now are adopting it as well. And it's here. It's here to stay, and it's exciting. So I feel really uh, like a, a low achiever here. Keith, I don't know if you're at 90% on your adoption rate. We're about 50% here, and we've moved up to about 60 to 65%. <clears throat> through the pandemic. But I know that Dr. Aviv and, and Stevenson have niche boutique practices. I, I wish we could achieve that sort of uh, uh, adoption rate, conversion rate, but we, we just can't do that. Keith, what is your, I'm curious, an academic environment there in Winston-Salem, what is your premium adoption rate? We're, um, you know, before COVID, I would say probably 50, 60%. And we've seen a bump up with refractive cataract surgery, um, just, just with like a femto, let's say, that conversion rate's up to 70, 75%. So I think Last Tuesday or this Tuesday that, that we just did, just passed, I think I had one regular FACO, one DSEC FACO, and the rest were all FEMTO. And then I think four of those patients had uh, either a toric or a, a multifocal type lens. So I'm definitely seeing that conversion rate. Even the residents are bringing me more cases where their, their patients are saying they want options with less glasses. So, that, so you, in traditional sense, we haven't seen a lot of residents doing a lot of you know, high-end refractive surgery out here, pretty conservative, at least some of the other attendings are. But now I'm seeing this sort of interest in bringing those patients to me to help them you know, figure out, which is great because I think you know, that's the way of the future. And I, I'm glad they're learning it, even if, they're, if their patients are sort of forcing them to do it. Right. So that begs the question then, if we're seeing this increase in premium services, we absolutely have to be nailing the target. So Dr. Stevenson, you, I know uh, you have all the latest and greatest technology there, the, the best biometers, the best formulas. So tell us why intraoperative aberrometry still has a role or does it? Well, in my practice, it does. Um, you know, I, I, I treat all patients the same, whether they're a premium or a straightforward cataract. They all get an OCT of the macula. They all get uh, IO Master 700. I now have the new uh, corneal topography, which is very exciting. I, they all get Cassini. I use Lensar. All of that's Bluetooth to my uh, Lensar. I use IntelliAxis marks, but then I always check with Aura. And for me, um, and, and I know Tall has used um, uh, Aura for a, a long, long time. And I, if I can still get another 3% or 5% better outcome by using Aura, whether it takes me three more seconds or 20 seconds, I think for me, it's really, really important. Um, I am not a refractive surgeon. I do not do LASIK or PRK. So I have to get it right the first time. Kathy McCabe is right down the street from me if I need an enhancement. I have really literally no enhancements and, and uh, I've been very, very lucky, but I use the same methodical process, all the new formulas, I still look at everything, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm using veracity that helps uh, with, you know, transposition problems if I ever have it, but I check and double check and triple check because I'm obsessive, obsessive compulsive about, about my surgery, but I don't want to have to do, I want to get it right the first time and Aura, you know, I, I've been using it for 10 years and Aura, it, Aura brought me to that. It made me a cataract refractive surgeon. So without it, um, you know, it's only gone down once in my hands and I canceled my day because I had, you know, 11 toric lenses and I wasn't uh, comfortable not having aura. So. Well, you know, I, I had a case recently and I was talking to uh, my assistant there in surgery and I said to her after the case, I said, you know, because the aura 
we couldn't get a good measurement because the technician had not protected the cornea. Tetracaine keratopathy resulted during the case and I really couldn't see well enough to, to make any sense of my aura numbers. And I, I was so upset because this patient was really high myope, high astigmatism. And I said, I, I felt like I was flying blind. I felt right. like I was a pilot in a storm and their instrument panel went out that's supposed to tell them exactly where to go. And of course we go back to doing it the old fashioned way with our markings and, and a, uh, uh, you know, uh, having a, a uh, access marker on the table, which of course we did, but I still love to be able to see that we really reduce that astigmatism on the table as much as possible and then manage that to get it as close to zero. What about you guys? Keith, do you have uh, aura at Wake Forest there or what, what do you feel we about? Don't. Um, we don't. We rely heavily on the, you know, the Barrett formulas. We like those a lot. And so, and again, I am a refractive surgeon, so I do do some enhancements. We offer that as part of our package. If if we're off, you know, half diopter here or there or diopter, we can we could bring them underneath the laser. A lot of the older patients can do PRK very well, tolerate it without pain. Um, they heal up pretty fast. They don't even need mitomycin on those folks. So, so that's kind of been our mantra. We looked at Aura, and then you know, what with the university you have to justify every little extra cost, and it, it didn't make it didn't pass the, the the cost analysis in our in our situation. Maybe one day, hopefully, it will. But right now, we had to kind of go without. And luckily, at that time, I think the biometry it got a little better, especially with the Barretts and the Hill RBF stuff. Tal, how about you? No, I echo everyone. You know, I've used Aura for, for years, like most of you. I, just, I can't believe it's coming about a decade. And in the beginning, you know, we didn't know much about posterior cornea. We didn't have the Barrett. And we, I relied on that. And I remember canceling cases. I remember I had Femto in one, one OR and Aura in the other when we first came out. And I would book more cases more with the Aura than the Femto because it was more important to me. But I think things have shifted for me. Uh, I've relied so we have, you know, I mean, D's got the latest diagnostic equipment we have. You have IntelliAxis, and I'm hopefully about to have that with the Cassini integration to the Catalyst, where I'll have perfect, you know, iris registration uh, for Torix. And I found with the Barrett and Hill RBF uh, and my Cassini and the pre-op measurements for monofocal Torix, I'm relying on that. And even the studies show it's still, you know, when Grant Barrett tells me that his formula still beats measured posterior cornea, and, and it's true, Aura still uncovers things, and I still have it. But I'm relying more and more, and I trusted a little less on the on the axis and magnitude than I used to. I still rely on it heavily for the sphere, uh, or any presbyopic lens to go up 0.5, down 0.5. Of course, any post-refractive, and of course, unusual axial lengths or unusual Ks. So, ORS is still an integral part of what I have, but less so for monofocal torx than it used to be. And and for me, I think even for the monofocal non-torx, it's more of a validation. It's more of just making sure that we're in the ballpark. But we, we do uncover unusual things, and that's the hard part of giving it up because I know there are cases where something doesn't make sense, you have to make a tough call, sometimes you're hedging in between your pre-op data and what Aura says, and more often than not, I'm happy that I did. So, you know, it, it is uh, interesting and it is evolving for sure. So we all wanna try to reduce our patients touching their eye. I think that's one of the reasons why LASIK may be up as well. So I know with post-operative drops, everybody's doing the same thing, trying to reduce the number of post-operative drops. Have you all streamlined your regimens or, or changed? I know, Keith, you've been very involved with uh, intraoperative medications to help reduce post-op drops. What are your thoughts about how we can do that and streamline our post-op process? You know, I've been looking in, into this for years, trying to, you know, you know, everyone has, what's the holy grail and on how can we get to no dropped or, or one drop? And so, you know, with me for the last 10 years, I've, I've not 
really felt like I needed a steroid as my primary anti-inflammatory. And I'm a, a bigger fan of the NSAID, especially Bronfenac. Any form of Bronfenac seems to work really well at, at not only pain control, but post-operative CME. And then the last few years, we've had uh, Omidria, where we've been able to instill intracameral phenylephrine and catorolac during cataract surgery. So we've done some research with that, you know, wondering if, if we do that during surgery and suppress all the inflammation during the time of surgery, you know, do we really need the post-operative drops? So we're actually enrolling patients right now in a no-drop study. It got shut down a little bit with the COVID thing. We were not allowed to do any IRB protocols for a while, but it's a prospective analysis where we're not using any drops. We're just doing uh, intracameral moxie at the end of the case and then omidria during the the, the surgery, and then uh, we're looking at our post-operative uh, macular thickness at um, about four to six weeks out. And, and so far, it's been going well. I can't, I can't disclose all the numbers, but we're still enrolling patients. The IRB hasn't shut us down. Uh, you know, my uh, people who are watching me uh, said it's still okay to proceed. So um, I think we'll find that it's at least non-inferior to topical meds. Uh, for those of us who still want maybe an extra security blanket, maybe do both a topical inset and an intracameral inset. And, and when we do that, we do, you know, people who don't enroll and are taking omidria, it's just once a day bronfenac as their only <coughs> post-operative drop for about 30 days. And, and we're seeing like less than 0.2% of CME rate with that regimen. It's really what low. Breakthrough. I know breakthrough has always been a concern of, for people who are going to go without the steroid. So yeah, so what we've learned is we don't treat cell. Um, if we see anterior chamber cell at one week, uh, but the patient's asymptomatic, they're not having photophobia or pain, we figure that you know, some of that cell might be just pigment dispersion or just basic a little bit of inflammation. Um, but, but we found that that doesn't correlate with uh, post-operative CME. Uh, so if you see cell, I think we're used to treating it being cataract surgeons and that's what we've been taught. But we're learning that even if you see cell, you don't really necessarily have to treat it with a steroid. The only time we use a steroid for breakthrough would be if they have um, pain or photophobia. And then that's 1%, about 1% of our patients. That's the other idea is, you know, if, if we need a steroid, we can add it later and not risk any, um, you know, uh, untoward problems like CME. We can still prevent CME with the NSAID. But we're really just giving the steroid to help them more, to be more comfortable where do we use it the most? It's probably um, retained cortex. If you don't clean up all the cortex, it's gonna cause some inflammation or previous uh, history of uveitis. We'll see some of those patients need a steroid afterwards. That's, well, that's great. So Dee, I, I know- I'm sorry. I was just gonna say Dee, I know you have some uh, experience with Dextenza. That's been one way that you, you've talked, I've heard you speak about getting patients off of the steroid that way. So what do you, what do you think about Dextenza and, and if you have any experience with DexiQ? Well, I don't have any, uh, first of all, I, I work at an HCA facility, so it took me four years to get Omidria. And I've used Omidria for the last year and a half. And now, since it's off pass-through, I can no longer use it. They will not accept samples. So I've had this great year and a half of using Omidria and a topical steroid and a topical uh, non-steroidal. Um, and then, you know, I, so I decided they wouldn't let me have Dextenza or DexiQ at my surgery center. So I said, forget it. I'm going to do first day post-op Dextenza and uh, intracam or intra intracameral light or uh, Omidria. 
uh, and um, and topical um, Brofinac, uh, Bromsite BID uh, for four to six weeks. And I had no breakthrough and I loved it, but it wasn't, I couldn't get it. You couldn't do it outside in your private office on a Medicare patient. You could only do it on commercial pay. So now I got Dextenza on. So, but now I don't have Omidria. So I'm back to the same kind of, you know, so I'm going to use, you know, you know, so I'm, um, I'm back and forward. Um, DexaQ I think has its place. However, I have seen um, some complications and listened to some complications, some, you know, where it doesn't stay where it's supposed to, where it's, you know, been on the lens and some cytheomatosine so had to laser it off the lens. I'll get there. I, I, I do want to try it, but Dextenza has been, you know, I, I published this year, a few months ago, my first 20 patients, uh, first post-op day Dextenza, and I had no breakthrough and easy, no discomfort. Patients wanted it in there. Some of them were bilateral, some of them were not. Um, but they, the ones that were not bilateral, they said, oh, I would take this over having to take an extra drop uh, for six weeks. So, you know, that's kind of where I stand. But I, I thought I had it all figured out. I was going to use Dextenza, Omidria, and, and, and a, and a non-steroidal and, and be done, you know, and, and I thought that would be great. And, and here I am back doing uh, everything, you know, so um, we'll, see <laughs> how, we'll see how the tides turn. But I've had great luck with Dextenza and it just got approved. So actually I use it for the first time in my surgery center next week. Um, but I've been using it up in my office, um, you know, for the last year or so, year and a half. Fantastic. I, I, I like the idea of Dextenza and I know many people who are using it. We've been working on, on trialing that here locally. Uh, I, I, I think Omidria is the thing that I really love the most and I hope we don't have it taken away because now it's lost pass through. We are still able to use it for the time being in our surgery center. And I love the fact that I don't, I rarely use a Malugan ring anymore. I mean, honestly, if you're using Omidria on those people, then the pupil doesn't come down anymore. And, you know, we can operate through a, a five, five and a half millimeter pupil if we need to. And it's a question of whether or not it's going to come down further and it won't with the Omidria in right. some of those cases. Well, and, and you know, last, last week was the first week that I couldn't use Omidria. And those patients were the week before all Omidria patients. And I had and I call my patients the day of surgery, the night before surgery, and then the day of surgery. That night, I call them at home, and every single one of them said, what did you do different on this eye than you did my eye before? Uh -oh. And I always tell them, they're sisters, they're not twins. You know, so, and they said, well, it had my eye felt like it does right now on my first eye. I'm not sure I would have done my second eye. Three people said that. And the other one said, yeah, I was a little more uncomfortable. That my other eye, definitely, I had no pain or discomfort ever at any time, and now it just, it's just kind of, you know, just feels irritated. So it's like, that was the telltale sign for me that Omidria was, is where to be. And it's like, dang it. You know, now what am I supposed to do? You know, yeah, I really hope they get coverage. I and mean, we'll, we'll probably have to wait till a new president or the, you know, elections over yeah. to see what's going to happen with that. But I really hope they get some coverage so we can use it again. Oh, me too. Me too. Tal, Tal what's the landscape in New York with, with these new you know, pharmaceuticals? I, and what are you doing for post-op? We've all, we're all trying to crack this, you know, I've all, I've spent 10 years trying to do what Keith Walter's doing, just give him one, one drop a day of Bromfenac, but it's just not working for me uh, on all the patients. Obviously, there are some that it can work on. And, you know, I'd like to keep, you might, I just, everyone has different demographics for their patients. And here, my patients, we want to have, um, we want to have no breakthrough. I want to be, you know, I think that if we used, you know, 
prednisolone acetate four times a day. Now, no one can do that, of course, but you know, we do, they do pretty well, very little breakthrough. And I think that's really the gold standard. Of course, we, uh, most of us now use brand drops at BID and things like that. And I've tried the, uh, the drops all mixed together in a compounding pharmacy. I've tried every combination. I find there's no one, one and I've tried the Extensa and DexEQ as well. Uh, you know, there's so many reimbursement issues with Extensa and DexEQ that you have to figure out it's almost another person in the office to figure out if this is going to be eligible, if it's not going to be eligible. And I like to keep things simple. Uh, and so we've been using just drops, you know, plain old drops and then said, and a steroid. I've been injecting uh, moxifloxacin for years and still do that. I think that's, that's the gold standard. And I'd love to come off that. I really would. I think, it, you know, you hear about people just do an injection of a little Kenalog. It's an inexpensive way. It works pretty well for 90%. You know, moxifloxacin in the eye, and then maybe a Vigamox for a bottle and then a little catalog. I haven't done that. I used to do that when I had a practice in Brooklyn and patients, you know, certain patients just couldn't take drops. Every single patient, you just did that. They did great. I haven't really put that into everyone. Is anyone doing that at all, subtenons? Not as elegant. You know, we don't want to leave a big red, red mark on someone's eye. That's, that's the issue. It's cosmetically unappealing. You could have an IOP spike. So I, I really like the idea of Dextensis. And it's the coverage issue and us you know, figuring out a, a rhythm of when, when it gets implanted. Is it going to be pre-op? Is it going to be one of our optometrists doing it pre-op a few days? And then, I, you know, I, so I don't have to worry about it in the OR. We have a lot of co-managed patients. How are we going to deal with that in co-management? And that's probably one of the reasons why we, we don't mess around with a lot of things that might disrupt the post-operative course or maybe take patients off steroids because I don't want a patient to have to get referred back from, you know, 30 miles away because they have breakthrough iritis. So I think that's why we've just kind of kept it simple and we still use the drops. And I feel more comfortable that it's, it's more predictable, more reproducible. So what are you gonna do? Um, so let's, let's talk a little more about the lenses. Now that we know we've had some new lenses hit the market. Uh, I was super excited right before the pandemic. We, we had just started to have good experience with panoptics. You know, that was new. Now they're, you know, other, the new EDOF, Vividi, we've got Symphony uh, Plus and different, you know, different lenses that have come out. And uh, it's super exciting time for us. LAL is out now. What's, Tal, what's exciting you? What, tell me what you're, you're thinking and have, have your lens choices changed a little bit? Did COVID impact any of that? Or, you know, what has happened uh, as you've gone through this process? You know, I think so. I think what I've seen is, uh, you know, we saw this in Europe. I remember three years ago, I went to, uh, I don't know if it was ESCR or something, and all the Europeans were saying, Bifocal is done, eat off not so much, the trifocal is everything. And you know, now that we have a trifocal here, I must say I am impressed. Uh, I'm impressed with uh, the trifocal we have. And that is my go-to lens for an eye that is one I can render plano most likely. I'm not gonna think of a very unusual crazy eye, like an RK for example, you know, without a lot of instruction. And, uh, and one that I think is 2020, 2020 minus potential. I think you, you have those two factors, it's, it's like a home run. Uh, and of course, every patient I do these, these, these uh, lenses on, you know, I have to, I used to have, uh, you know, do you want, which two of the three zones do you want? Do you want one of three, two of three? It's all done. You have a full focus lens. Uh, it, it has very, very minimal photic phenomenon. And I tell basically every patient four things, and I put this in my EHR. Uh, you know, there's some photic phenomenon, little circles around lights that usually aren't bad. Uh, you may need an eye well exchange. You may need to touch up, like I tell my LASIK patients, you're no different because we're getting rid of your glasses. This is a less than 5% chance. That's part of the price. And you may need glasses for certain things. You know, with those four things covered, uh, 
that lens doesn't disappoint. And of course, if the eye is not a perfect eye, I think it's where EDOF really comes in. Uh, or if someone says they really want the highest of contrast but more range, and that's where maybe an EDOF comes in. I still use the Symphony. I'm looking forward to use Vividi. We just uh, got that in. Uh, looking, I would love to hear if any of you guys have put those in at all. Um, excited to have all these options. Uh, and I think patients are quite enthusiastic as well. So Keith, what, what about you? Have you seen an uptick in, in the trifocal technology or still, I know you're a big fan of EDOF uh, for a while. What's, how do you decide who gets what? So, um, you know, with the university system, with, when COVID hit, uh, nothing got approved. So like, even if we wanted something new, uh, like say even the Technus Toric 2, which is the one that, you know, doesn't rotate as much, I just now got that approved. Um, so everything got shut down. So I'm a little bit still back in 2019, but I'm happy. I, 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 like, um, I like Symphony, like, like Tal mentioned. I, I think everyone deserves a Symphony, at least in one eye. It seems to give them very good quality distance vision and good quality contrast. And then for the second eye, maybe it's a Symphony, uh, maybe a little mini mono, or more likely I'll, I'll put a, a multifocal, like a ZL boot with a 325 ad. And I feel like I can get most people happy with that. Again, like, like Tal said, with the proper preoperative counseling, making sure you, know, you check all the boxes that they're, they're going to be okay with wearing glasses occasionally. They're okay with some of the night vision issues. But, um, but still really loving that platform as, as sort of my go-to. I'm definitely interested in some of the other options, and, and hopefully we'll get back uh, to full steam here in the academic world. But yeah, they totally shut everything down. Uh, IRB shut down. Everything was just like, we're not doing anything, but maybe, you know, run at a respirator and that's it. And, and Dee, have you changed your, your lenses? Or I know you always are on the cutting edge over there. So well, tell me what you're you know, I was not a multifocal girl. You know, um, splitting light was not a thing I liked. So I was a big Crystalline's TrueLine user until the panoptics came out. And when I had sat down and had a conversation with Michael Breen um, uh, at Alcon, he said, D, you need to try it. You'll really like it. Well, it's my go-to lens now, um, unless wow. they RK. If they've had RK, then they get a crystal lens or true line. Um, I also um, am very enamored of the Bosch and Lohm, um, multi or uh, monofocal Toric and uh, their monofocal uh, um, MX60E. And now they have new, a new one that's, uh, it, it's the preloaded one. They have a, T, they have a Toric one and a, a, and a regular uh, monofocal. But I get a lot of patients with increased depth of focus, you know, two diopters of, when I looked at it on uh, the eye trace and presented my results at ACOS meeting one year. And uh, the nice thing about that, it's a, it's a the, any of the, um, lenses from BNL, they're aspheric, so they're same power from center to edge. So if you get somebody with a zonulopathy and that lens gets decentered or tilted, you're not inducing anything. You know, the cornea likes to be plus. That's how we're born, it likes to be plus. And when you try to mess with that, you're gonna get different kinds of dysphotopsies or different kinds of, of uh, higher order aberrations. So I really, um, you know, I use a lot of the monofocal torics um, the BNL monofocal torques, and I get really a great intermediate. Um, you know, eighty-five percent, ninety-five percent are or eighty. Excuse me, eighty-five percent are you know J three, um, you know, or twenty forty intermediate, so they can read their phone. Everything is is pretty good for them. They can see their computer without any problems, and a lot of them get um, you know J two um, at near. Now it is not. You know, I think it's from you know how the cornea is, and I think it also. 
how that lens, it's got big haptics. It covers 110 degrees of the bag. I think it's how it sits there in the bag, why, why you get an increased depth of field. And I also think if you leave them with a little bit of with the rule astigmatism, they're gonna increase depth of field. So you just have to manipulate that. The beauty of the panoptics to me is like Tal said, you don't have to explain everything to them, you know? And I also use um, one, uh, you know, the, some of these young whippersnappers like Blake Williamson said, you know, he was tired of hearing people complain about halos and glare. And he said, hey, that means that lens is working. So, you know, there's ways to handle it, but you know, you have to be smart. You know, I've done this for a long time and I have, I don't advertise and my patients are, it's, you know, by patient referral. Um, you know, I just try to under promise and over deliver. And that was, to me, I could really make that true line and crystallines work by doing a non-dominant eye first, make them like minus 50, then nail the distance. And, you know, so, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of chair time. The patient has to really sign up for, you know, exercising and coming back and yagging early and often and, 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 you know, that it's not going to, and the corneal surface is so important for all of these lenses and polishing the capsule is so important for all of these lenses now, changing the tetanus up so it doesn't rotate. If you clean that, polish that capsule, like I was trained to do with the true line and crystallines, that tetanus moved. And, you know, so um, you got to really polish. And I just think that you have to look at each patient individually, but I, this technology is exciting. All of it's exciting. And when the Clarion material comes out for the Vividy, that would be really um, something special. So we have something to look forward to. And, and then of course, uh, BNL is gonna come out with a multifocal on the platform of the MX60T. And I, I think that would be just incredible, especially for post-refractive patients. Well, Dee, I think you're the most important thing that you, you bring up, you didn't specifically say it, but we have to be custom cataract surgeons. Okay, we've got to use all of the technologies, intraoperative, preoperative, you know, the drops, thinking about refractive error with the rule, depth of focus. So, I mean, I, I like everything you said. I think mini monovision with that MX60 works really, really well for a little extra depth of focus. Uh, I think the Vividy is going to be very, very promising. I've actually implanted now 12 or 13 Vividy, I think three of them bilateral. And it's really interesting. And I'll tell you, my first impressions are that that lens, it works. And I, I can't tell you exactly why. If you look at the profile of the lens, there's a little central bump out around the center optic. And it doesn't really go out very far. So I, I wouldn't expect it to have as much near vision as it does. But the patients say they're seeing well and even the ones that I've missed a little on the myopic side it has not decreased their distance vision so I think you can tend to over minus them post-op I think that little central bump out makes it a tougher refraction somewhat similar to the symphony so I would say be aware of that but we're utilizing it for people that are not great candidates for a high ad multifocal lens or a trifocal uh, and I, I agree with Tal I'd love it if I could just walk in and give everybody the panoptics and really simplify the discussion but I have so many people that are super active and night drive a lot and they're a boat captain or they golf and, you know, just, so I tell them about the EDOF options or, or low ad multifocal options. And I thought I wouldn't have to have that discussion anymore, but I am still having a discussion about different bifocal versus trifocal type of discussion. So I think there's still going to be a place for low ad lenses in our practices and, and we'll uh, continue to do that. Quinn, so, Quinn, where do you um, where do you uh, place the Vividy? How do you pitch it to your patients, or, or are you doing this decision behind the scenes based on their their needs? 
So uh, every Panoptics patient, you know, every patient walks into my practice and they're kind of a trifocal candidate until they prove themselves otherwise anatomically or personality wise, right? <laughs> so I agree with Tal, you have to mention the photic phenomena. So I actually show them a slide that's on the computers. If you type in multifocal halos and just do a Google search, you know, all of us have desktops in our lanes now. So I populate that and then I pick one with really big halos. I say, look, this is worst case scenario. This is what you're probably gonna see in the first month or so, maybe less, but over the next few months to six months, that's gonna come down. I'll show them another image. I'll say it, it's gonna be more discreet down the road, but some people are bothered. And I literally quote, I say in the FDA study, 99.2% of people said they'd have the same lens implanted. My stepdad has this lens in his eyes. He, loved it. he loves it, most people love it, but I can't tell you if you're gonna be the one in a hundred who is a little annoyed or bothered by those halos. So that's something to consider, especially if you do a lot of night driving. And, and so I, I kind of pause and just say, is this something that would bother you? And then they look and most of them just say, you know, I, I really want the best range of vision. I'm, I'm not so worried about the halos. I'd say that's what the majority of patients say, but then I'm really picky, Keith. So if their coma's a little high or really high angle kappa, or they've, they've had LASIK or they're super dry or just a funny topography, we keep bringing them back. And then eventually I'll say, you know what? I think the EDOF option or the low ad multifocal is a better option for you. And we published this with the mini monovision with active focus and that worked really well. And I know people do the same with symphony. So I think we've got other options where there's less light splitting than what the trifocal or a high ad multifocal would do. And right. so I, I feel more comfortable with probably a third of my patients ending up having the low ad option and not the high ad option. Right, good. So I, I wanted to squeeze in a little discussion about MIGS technology. There's been a lot of changes in the MIGS arena and I think most of us as refractive cataract surgeons were probably late to the party with MIGS. I know I was to some extent. I, I let my glaucoma colleagues and other people do a lot more of the MIGS, but then I realized that I was losing out on an opportunity to help some of our cataract patients by not talking to them about lowering their pressure while we were there in surgery. So I gradually went ahead and did Cypass and then did uh, the iStent and then the Omni and now iStent Inject and now iStent Inject W. And I think for me, it's been a great add-on and there are people where I was initially uncomfortable pairing like say a Femto case or a Toric case with MIGS. But I think that's been a, an area to really grow my practice. And also in terms of co-management, the optometrists like to know that we're gonna do something about our patient's glaucoma. Our internal optometrists, in fact, in our practice, literally come up to me once every six months and say, what more do you have on the MIGS arena? Is there anything now better than the iStent or the Omni? What, what's new? What's coming down the pipeline? And those have been the technologies that I've, I've paired with refractive cataract surgery, and at least in my hands, I think the iStent is the most predictable and reproducible with the least risk of complications, especially considering that you know, 40 to 50% of my patients can be co-managed on any given week. So what, what about you? I'm, I'm gonna ask Tyler, you're in New York. Do you do MIGS? What, there's a lot of glaucoma surgeons right down the street from, from you, I'm sure. You know, uh, what, what is your thought about offering that? Should every cataract surgeon do it or should we leave it to the glaucoma docs? I think it depends on your practice. Uh, I I've been offering it from day one. I love MIGS like you because it's part of the, uh, we have the ability to deliver freedom, freedom from chronic disease and chronic conditions. 
I always think, you know, the patient, the pilot, you know, the Air Force, his 20-20 vision is great. Then they get presbyopia, then they get hyperopia, then they get against the rule of stigmatism, and then they get they get on latanoprost. So they're coming in, they're plus two, minus one times. They're, they've, got, they've got hyperopia, presbyopia, glaucoma, and astigmatism. These are chronic conditions. It's like having, you know, high blood pressure and then cholesterol, and then you have obesity. You can't just have one little procedure in 10 minutes that fixes all three, but we do. And that MIGS allows us to do that last beautiful thing, taking away that eye drop and lowering the pressure. So I love it. Uh, I like the stent-based MIGS like you, Quentin. I find that, uh, first of all, we have good data. Those, those you know, FDA has required those companies to have five-year data, years of data, whereas some of the other more destructive ones, they're just, they're, you know, they're just riding on the goniotomy indication. They work, and glaucoma doctors love them for certain indications. But again, they maybe cause a little more hyphema, and I love, uh, especially with co-management and having other post-op doctors, what you said. I would like to add the hydrates I've been really impressed with. Definitely takes more effort. Can't get it 100%, although getting close. Uh, and that one really gets the pressure low, I feel, in a safe way. So I mix it up between the ice tank and the hydrates, depending on how severe, how many drops, et cetera. And I just throw it on top of whatever I'm doing. If they're getting a multifocal toric with pupil stretch, I'll still go ahead and, you know, I'll still go ahead and put that at the end uh, because it's just part of what we can do. I think the three-legged stool that can't refractive cataract surgeons, you know, we got to take care of dry eye. Either we or someone in our practice, someone next door, we, we or someone close by has got to do refractive surgery and we or someone close by has got to take care of the pressure. Those are the three things. You could choose to do some or all of them. So that's what we all do. Dee, how about you? Are you a mixed surgeon? I am. What's your favorite? Well, it, it, it's kind of interesting because I, before I stepped off, um, I had done the, the original eye, eye uh, stent and, um, I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't feel it was kind of awkward and I couldn't always get it in and I dragged it along the trabecular meshwork and I think I kind of did a landing strip, you know, that said, well, you're not hurting the patients because you're doing a goniotomy on them. Yeah. So, <laughs> what I did about four years ago, <clears throat> I went to the King and I went to visit Ica Med in Toronto and uh, spent about three days with him in the operating room and watched him do every kind of glaucoma procedure on from patients that, I mean, everything, every kind of surgery you can imagine. And he gave me a lot of confidence and he said, you know, you just have to step off. And there are going to be patients that may need two procedures and maybe that's not what you want to take care of. But in my community, glaucoma guys do not do MIGs. They do TRABs and, and, and you know, mat valves. And I've had great luck with the iJEC uh, uh, and the new one coming out um, I use next week for the first time. And, and, I, and I went down to, um, to see Juan Baye do the hydrus um, about five years or eight years ago now. And I, I really love the hydrus. It is a little more difficult there's a learning, a big learning curve with that, but it really works. And their data is just superb. There's not better data on the market right now. There's a lot of mixed procedures that are done in Canada that are not done. And a lot of uh, mixed procedures that are done by Ike that aren't done by anyone else either, but really shows you in, in Tal, I couldn't say, have said it any better than you've said, you know, we have, you know, the opportunity, you know, that used to be your spiel or used to be my spiel for astigmatism. You know, 72% of you have astigmatism and that's the lowest hanging fruit. Why are we not taking care of it? You know, we've got the dry eye, we've got astigmatism. I show patients with the eye trace. If I take their astigmatism, if I show them the E, 
and I correct their astigmatism, how clear their E is going to be. I show them this is the cataract E. This is what, if I get rid of your cataract, this is what this E will look like. So I have a lot of photographs I can show like you do with the different types of symptoms from the, from the lenses. But, you know, with MIGS, I just think it, it, it allows me to be, be a, uh, you know, I'm a, a patient-centric boutique practice, and I've got to offer that technology. I've got to offer it. And, and if they have severe, severe glaucoma, they're not a candidate for what I use for MIGS procedures anyway, so they wouldn't be getting surgery from me, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the beauty of some of this stuff is if we can use it post, after they've already had a cataract, it would be nice to be able to get some of this approved so you could do it after the fact that it didn't have to be done freestanding or with a cataract. So that would be my only wish for that is some of that stuff being approved on its own. And, uh, you know, so those are really the only two that I have experience with, and I really like both of them. I know the, the Omni device is approved as a standalone with the Tony yes. uh, uh procedure. And then I know the iStent Infinite, which is going to be three iStents, that they're looking for a standalone indication as well for when that comes out. And I have tried the iStent W. And it is nicer. It's, you know, a little easier because it's got the wider flange, so you're not going to over-implant that as as easily as you could the uh, traditional ice tank inject. Keith, what about you? What's, what's your, your MIGS go-to or do you do MIGS at all? Yeah, so I, I, I wasn't a believer, you know, when they first came out, you know, I'm, I'm a cataract surgeon. What am I doing messing around the glaucoma space? And I'll leave that to Ike and, you know, the other people. And, but, but, you know, I started doing uh, ice stent, the traditional ice, the first ice stent a couple of years ago, I, like the little struggle with it. But since the inject came out and now the inject W, uh, we've been doing a ton of them. And now I feel bad that I didn't offer it before. I, I feel like, you know, what a service yeah. and a value to our patients. And um, we did our own study. As you may know, I'm a little odd. I, I operate superiorly on all my patients. So we figured, uh, we figured, what the heck, we'll just implant these iStents inferiorly and see how it goes. And actually, we've gotten really good results. We've gotten, um, we just looked at our latest data 75% of our patients are 18 millimeters or less off drops. Wow. So we're actually a little ahead of the pivotal trial that, that Glaucos did, and we're going to publish that in JCRS. So we're, we're real big believers, um, really low complication rate. Again, you know, if you're going to put your toe in the water on anything, I'm a big fan of the eye stent. Uh, we haven't been, I haven't ventured into Hydrus or any, any of the other ones, I think because we're getting good results with what we're doing. I didn't want to destroy a lot of TM because I do have glaucoma partners and they might get mad at me if I, you know, did something irreversible. So uh, um, they, they've approved for me to do this and I'm happy to do it and they're happy for me to do it. So it's been working great. Good. That's great. That's fantastic to hear. We, we all kind of have the same opinion there on the MIG space. And I, I agree, Keith. I wish I had started doing MIGs a little earlier. I just thought I was going to fill my clinic with a bunch of these train wreck glaucoma patients and not have time to see the patients that I love, the refractive. And right. Patients. But that really has not happened, and especially with the eye spent being so, so reproducible. And I, like you, try to at least have one stint in the inferior quadrant. It's kind of challenging at times, but, you know, you kind of have to learn how to turn and get one inferior because I had, I had one hyphema, and, of course, it was a referring ophthalmologist's family member oh, no. that, that had a hyphema with the eye stent. That's the only one I've ever had out of, you know, many, many hundreds, if not, you know, more. But uh, I think it's because I didn't, I wasn't being vigilant about placing one more inferior. So that was something that uh, I've tried to do now and still space the other one far apart to hopefully hit different collector channels. And I do, I do, Keith, too, my incisions at 12. So 
So are you doing both inferior like me? Yeah, yeah I think it works great. And I think it works and, great too. And I've seen a lot of hemorrhage at the end of surgery. I think, oh my God, I'm gonna see a hyphema tomorrow. And then the next day it's gone. Uh, so then I'm always like, wow, I guess it drained like a, like a toilet maybe. So what, what voodoo do you guys use to try to prevent that hyphema? Because we all see that reflux in the AC. It means we've had a great implantation, but I worry just like you. So I, I sit the patient up you know, in the bed a little bit you know, faster than I would with anybody else and overinflate the eye. Any other tips to maybe try to avoid hyphema? It can just happen sometimes. Uh, I've seen it with the anticoagulant sometimes. You know, usually I tell patients, don't worry about anticoagulant, but with the stent, I still tell them not to worry about it, but I've seen it happen in the first eye, then I, I've made changes for the second eye, but it's rare, maybe one in a hundred. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I think we're all happy that our patients are maybe prioritizing their health a little more, maybe coming to see us and wanting the best vision. Or, or maybe it's just that we're not taking vacation anymore, so we feel like we're really busy. Or, or they're not either. They're not, they're not yeah. having to work, you know, commute to work. They're working from home. They have plenty of time to come in and see us. <laughs> That's right. They can still work while they're in our waiting rooms. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, thanks, everybody, for, for being a part of this. I think this was great, and uh, I really appreciate you all, and I hope everybody enjoyed. And we'll sign off from here. Hope everybody has a great evening. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbbVie company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.